Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss the infectious disease outbreaks that sometimes take place on college campuses. Moms, particularly in the vaccine, once you're in college, may not be as effective in protecting you. And in fact, in most of those moms outbreak in colleges, majority of the students were vaccinated. Then we'll hear about common disorders of the endocrine system. Often these patients will not think that they have any symptoms, but after surgery they'll say, you know, I actually really did, looking back, I was feeling pretty tired and I didn't think that I was, but now I'm not. And then we'll explore an outreach program in Haiti that involves expertise from multiple SUNY schools. We visited other hospitals in the area to speak with the providers there and to start to learn what it is that they need from us. HealthLink on Air has all this and more coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an endocrinologist discusses diagnosis and treatment of the most common endocrine disorders. Then, we'll hear from a pediatrician who is involved in an effort to build a sustainable village and learning community in Haiti. But first, a pediatrician goes over the infectious disease outbreaks that are most likely to occur on college campuses. We occasionally hear about outbreaks on college campuses of various infectious diseases, um, such as mumps, meningitis, measles. Here to talk about why this happens and what can be done about it is Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at Upstate with expertise in infectious disease. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Hello. So what is it about college campuses that makes them sort of, it seems like they're easy for infectious diseases to spread? Well, colleges um, typically uh, house a um, large number of students, students who spend a prolonged period of time together um, in close proximity. Um, how, um, housing quarters, um, you know, alone uh, um, allow for close contact, and um, those conditions are uh, just fertile soil for infections to settle and spread. Okay. What types of um, outbreaks do we see commonly? So the outbreaks that we have seen in the U.S. Um, that were um, reported from college um, settings include meningococcal uh, infection, um, mumps uh, most recently, even locally we had mumps in SU um, uh, University, and uh, measles have been reported as well in the past. So a variety of infections can easily spread at college settings. So meningococcal, um, mumps, and measles, are these serious diseases? Can we talk a little about each one? Are they, are they viruses? Uh, uh, so s some of them are, yes. Mumps and measles are viruses. Meningococcal um, infection is a bacterial infection. And uh, both meningococcal and measles infections uh, can be very se uh, serious. 
um, meningococcal disease especially um, can be difficult to diagnose early because um, it can look just like a flu and within 24 hours uh, patients can die from the infection. So it's one that's very difficult to diagnose early and um, typically leads to serious disease with um, serious consequences um, or death. Measles um, is highly contagious. It's a vital illness uh, for which we have excellent vaccine for. And uh, nowadays, we don't see much of measles. So the challenge that we see with measles infection is that people don't, or providers don't even think about measles because uh, we've been so successful into, you know, successful in decreasing a number of measles cases and providers are not familiar with it. So delayed diagnosis can be a, can be a problem. Um, mumps uh, alone um, may not be severe, although um, there are some serious complications of mumps infection as well. Um, uh, most recently, we had mumps outbreak in uh, Syracuse University when most of the students have presented with fever, sore throat, and cheek swelling. Uh, and because there were so many, people started thinking of mumps. Um, so um, those conditions, um, you know, uh, or symptoms are common for other infections. So it can take a while until providers will start thinking about uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. Um, so, and these sound like they're serious enough that a student would miss, end up missing quite a bit of school, potentially. Um, yeah, so th th these infections can have a huge impact both on students but also on colleges who, you know, have to undergo a tremendous effort in identifying cases and contacts and identify people who uh, might be vulnerable to infection, uh, those who are not, for example, vaccinated. Uh, some uh, students may need to be excluded from school if they don't have uh, proven uh, immunity to those conditions. So uh, this is, um, besides uh, the, the, the hardship on the patient alone, this is difficult for everyone else around, around them. Well, and to be scary, uh, uh, you know, have this going on and you're potentially far away from home, mm -hmm. you know, and you're sick and you're parents aren't there to take care of you kind of thing too, right? Yeah, so th this, you know, and we here at uh, Upstate, we have seen a number of children who are college students here, and then their parents do travel long distances often to stay with their loved ones. Uh, so this is a costly, time-consuming endeavor, and yet the students lose a lot of time, um, and they're out of classes. When you uh, hear about several cases of mumps on campus or measles or, or meningococcal, um, if you've been vaccinated for those diseases, are you safe? So it, it depends on condition. So I'll start with the, with the less good news. Uh, so for mumps, for example, um, the vaccine that we have uh, is not the greatest. Um, it, we know it does not uh, uh, protect as many people as we'd like to, and it's primarily uh, due to uh, the either first um, seroconversion, meaning that not everybody will develop a protective immunity, but also we know that people lose protection over time. So by the time you're in college, 
your immunity might have faded because, you know, last time you have received mom's vaccine, it was probably when you were going to school, um, when you were a kindergartner. So mom's particularly is um, an infection where the vaccine, once you're in college, may not be as effective in protecting you. And in fact, in most of those mom's outbreak in colleges, majority of the students were vaccinated. Wow. Yeah. So uh, do you need a booster shot? Would a booster shot help? Or? So in outbreak settings, that has been tested. And in New York City, there was an outbreak in um, a religious community um, um, where third dose of uh, uh, MMR vaccine, the mumps vaccine, was given. Um, in general, uh, that's not um, part of the, of the um, process. Once outbreak is identified, typically what universities would do with moms, they would identify people who are at risk, who are susceptible, and they would work um, by excluding or isolating or recommending minimal you know, social contact so they would um, resort themselves to these measures. Um, other infections, such as measles, um, are different uh, because the vaccine that we have is excellent. Uh, the immunity lasts, the uh, seroconversion is excellent. Um, so the problem with measles outbreaks is primarily related to people who refuse vaccines or intentionally are not vaccinated. Um, so they're vaccinating people around them is extremely effective in stopping an outbreak. Okay. All right, and then meningococcal being the bacterial, uh, does, is there a vaccine for that? There is, and actually most colleges in New York State recommend and, um, um, or mandate meningococcal vaccination. I'd just like to remind listeners that there are two types of meningococcal vaccines. Uh, one is a vaccine that has been recommended for a um, long period of time. Uh, now we have... Uh, a new vaccine that was licensed just recently, and it's a vaccine that's, um, that uh, protects children against meningococcal B vaccine. So it's important that parents check with their provider to make sure that um, their uh, teen received both types of both the vaccines types. because they might be only partially protected if they received one. If you're a person on a college campus and, and maybe a professor or a student on a college campus and one of these outbreaks is going on, is there anything you can do to protect yourself? If you've already been vaccinated and, and you're healthy, what else can you do? So the other measures that have been effective in uh, sort of protecting yourself and others is uh, to exercise uh, good hand hygiene, uh, minimize uh, contact with sick people. If you're sick yourself, um, please uh, stay away from others uh, to minimize transmission. Um, healthy, you know, eating habits, healthy sleep hygiene, and um, um, minimizing social, you know, attendance to social um, events um, is helpful as well because you'll protect yourself and you'll protect others. You know, the problem with some of those infection mums is a good example that you're contagious before you even know you have the infection. So uh, that can somewhat limit uh, your ability to protect yourself because you feel well, but you might be harboring the vi virus already and you might be transmitting it. Influenza is another, vac um, is another infection where you can actually transmit infection before you have before symptoms. Before you know that you're sick. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, this is uh, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease. Um, well, you touched on this a minute ago. Um, vaccinations are required in order to attend college, right? Correct. Yes, so a number of vaccines are mandated by colleges. Including yes. measles and mumps? So measles and mumps should be part of routine childhood immunizations, but uh, typically what colleges mandate are meningococcal uh, vaccine, and uh, I do believe they require hepatitis B vaccine, um, and there might be other vaccines that are college-specific um, that um, the colleges will, will So require. different colleges may have different requirements? and They do, yes. And then... Uh, some students don't get the vaccines, there's exemptions, right, so that they can... Yeah, so uh, you can, as a student or a parent, if you're a student 18 and older, or a parent if you're under underage, you can um, request medical exemption um, to vaccination, which typically means that you have a condition that would prevent you from getting safely vaccinated. Um, there are also groups of people who uh, would request religious exemptions. Uh, in New York State, that's one of the exemptions that's permitted. Um, again, that um, process is um, quite regimented and requires, you know, specialized uh, uh, form uh, to be filled out, and um, student or parents have to explain why they are opposed to vaccination. Is uh, people who are not vaccinated, is that the reason that we're having the outbreaks? So for measles, yes. The most recent data that we've seen of it outbreaks in Disneyland in California mm -hmm. or in uh, Ohio groups, uh, you know, those outbreaks were associated primarily with groups of people who intentionally did not vaccinate. Uh, with mumps, that's not a case. Uh, majority of the people who had mumps uh, in outbreak settings were vaccinated. Meningococcal disease is different uh, because most of the cases on colleges are isolated, what we call sporadic cases, that you'll get one or two cases of meningococcal disease. Um, and those are usually cases where um, the strain is a strain that's not in the vaccine. So um, that particular infection would not necessarily be associated with refu vaccine refusal. Is there um, any sign that the anti-vaccination movement is losing momentum? No. No? no. Okay. <laughs> I wish. Uh, um, those anti-vaccine groups are um, uh, very vocal. They may not necessarily be very well organized, but they are very vocal, and they draw a lot of media attention, which allows dissemination of their views and opinions and often can mislead people uh, to um, um, healthy choices. Do you see, um, as, as kids come of age in college um, and become adults um, and are able to make their own medical decisions, do you see uh, 18, 19-year-olds wanting to get caught up and get their childhood vaccinations? So um, I personally don't uh, because I don't see a lot of uh, college students um, in my setting, um, but healthcare centers on colleges um, um, can vaccinate um, uh, students, and um, I would certainly hope that as they come uh, to their independence and choices they can make their own health, that they would choose the safer choice, which is to vaccinate. All right. Well, even if vaccinations, if everyone was vaccinated on campus, 
you, we'd still see various colds and, and flus um, spreading, right? Yeah, so there are myriads of infections that can easily spread on campuses um, that we don't have uh, safe protection, such as vaccine. So again, exercising very good hand hygiene and um, um, staying home when you're sick, uh, avoiding contact with sick people uh, is the best prevention. Now we mentioned flu, influenza, there is a vaccine for, right? There is influenza uh, vaccine, um, and again, that uh, might be available even on campuses and health, health centers on campuses. So I would encourage students to inquire whether they can get vaccinated. Okay, good. Wonderful. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Yana Shaw. Uh, she's an assistant professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, disorders of the endocrine system. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're discussing three main reasons a person might need an endocrine surgeon with Assistant Professor of Surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. He specializes in endocrine surgery. Thanks for being here. No, thanks Appreciate for inviting it. me. So let's start by talking about how you become an endocrine surgeon. After medical school, what happens after medical school? So after medical school, you um, do a residency in general surgery. And general surgery is a specialty that is somewhat broad, but there's a lot of subspecialties uh, that encompass it. And one of them is endocrine surgery. So you spend five years doing your surgical training, and then you become board certified in general surgery. And you spend an additional one or two years, depending on the program and the research that you do, um, specializing in endocrine surgery. Okay. What attracted you to endocrine? What did you like about it? Uh, it was always an interest of mine from medical school onwards, and part of it is just how um, well the patients do when they're treated and how dramatic the results can sometimes be with such small organs. So normally you think of a big organ and big effects, but some, some of the smallest organs are the endocrine organs, especially the parathyroids. And even though you might be removing something that's as small as a jelly bean, um, patients can have dramatic improvements. And that, from the very beginning, that kind of drew my interest. And from there, you kind of become interested in the whole, all the different aspects of it. But that's what initially brought me in. Because I've I've heard it can be technically difficult, right? Surgery, because it's small? Yeah, the endocrine organs are a little bit delicate. um, But they're sort of closer to the outside of the body. And so you can usually, even though they're pretty delicate, um, address them through very small incisions. 
All right. Well, I want to make sure that we cover the three main types of patients that you care for. So um, thyroid cancer, thyroid nodules, and hyperparathyroidism. Um, so let's start with that one. W what is hyperparathyroidism? So to really understand it, you kind of have to back up and ask what a parathyroid gland is. And because most people haven't heard of them. We've they, heard of thyroid glands, exactly. but this is different. Exactly. And all the word parathyroid means is next to the thyroid. And they were given that name because they were initially discovered um, actually in rhinos, and nobody knew what they did. Uh, but they knew they lived right next to the thyroid gland, so they called them the parathyroids. So what they do is they're one of the, they're one of the components in the way your body manages your calcium levels in your blood and your total body calcium management. So most of your calcium is in your bones, and that's 99 out of 100 calcium molecules in your body or in your bones, and then the rest is everywhere else. Calcium is really important, though, for the function of every cell in your body. So calcium signals your muscles to move. It signals it's important in most of your the processes that all your cells have. So the management of it is very important. It has to be very, very tightly regulated. Um, hyperparathyroidism is when one of these glands, instead of responding to the normal influences of what's going on in your body starts making a little bit too much hormone on its own. And what ends up happening is the blood, the levels in your blood go up and they only go up a very slight bit. So if you looked at your lab reports with someone that has it, they might be 0.1 or 0.2 above the reference range on the lab slip. But that difference, because calcium is so important to all the cells functions, can have very significant impacts in how patients feel. And over time, it creates very significant health impacts. So would a patient necessarily um, experience symptoms bef before? Would they notice that something's wrong? Yeah, it depends on the patient. So some people are referred just because they um, had a couple of lab slips that their family doctor got back that said, this calcium's mildly elevated. Let's see if this needs to be taken care of. And those people may have no symptoms at all, but more frequently, they have really subtle symptoms that they may not have noticed because it's coming on over time. Things like difficulty concentrating, being a little bit more tired than usual. And I think earlier I'd mentioned that it's so gratifying seeing how people get better. Often these patients will not think that they have any symptoms, but after surgery, they'll say, you know, I actually really did looking back. I was feeling pretty tired and I didn't think that I was, but now I'm not. Um, so that would be the most mild form of the disease. Other patients have more severe forms, and they can have problems like um, bone fractures. So they had a, a fracture with osteoporosis, and that was being worked up, and they found out that the bones weren't strong enough because the calcium was being taken out, going into the blood, and then being passed out through the urine. As you can imagine, if you're passing some of this calcium out from your blood out through your urine, the other thing that often brings people in is they have kidney stones. Both of these can be caused by other um, reasons, but um, often what will happen is either people will have these lab slips for the mild one or they'll have these other things like kidney stones or broken bones. They'll be worked up by whoever's the best person that was initially taking care of that, and then they'll notice that their parathyroids are overactive. Wow. Well, a couple more things I wanted to ask. Um, I'm going to back you up quite a ways. Sure. This was discovered in rhinos first? Well, the, the glands themselves were, were wow. first discovered in rhinos. They're the last organ to be discovered. That's because in humans, they're very, very small, about the size of a grain of rice. 
In rhinos, they're normally about the size of a jelly bean. Now, when we end up needing to do surgery for parathyroids, you have four of them next to your thyroid. The key steps in the workup, first of all, is establishing that you do have this and your calcium isn't high for some other reason. The next step is figuring out which of the four is overactive. Most commonly it's one, occasionally two, and rarely all four. And then coming up with a plan to take care of that. Do they get physically bigger if they're hyper? Yeah, they do. They so do. when they're normal, they're about the size of the grain of rice, and they get larger as they um, become more overactive. So usually when you have, um, most, typ- most commonly, you have one overactive gland, and so that single overactive gland might be the size of a jelly bean or so, but they can have a variety of shapes. Sometimes they'll grow larger all in a circle like a jelly bean. Sometimes they'll just grow longer and they can form some somewhat unusual shapes. Um, less commonly, um, you'll have two or more that are overactive and those will be enlarged as well. Um, but can you feel it? You can't, they're you so can't small feel them. that okay. No, and they're too soft typically. Okay. Um, so there are three tests to figure out which one of these are um, the overactive glands. The first test is in the office. You undergo an ultrasound. And if there's a normal gland, it can't be seen on ultrasound. But if there's, in fact, an overactive one, about seven times out of ten, you can see it on the ultrasound. And that's actually very helpful because it also helps to plan the operation so you can do it through a very small incision with using ultrasound guidance. The second test, which also picks up which one's enlarged about seven out of ten times, is a nuclear medicine test that the radiologists do. And they do a combined nuclear medicine test with a CT scan. So the CT scan shows the body structure around it, and the nuclear medicine test finds out where it is. So they map that, um, that bright spot onto that CT scan, and that also helps with the planning. Most of the time, both of those agree. Sometimes okay. they disagree, and sometimes neither one of them shows um, where it is. And so the really the third test, and the one we used for all patients, but is particularly important for those patients who neither one of those tests lights up, is in the operating room, the surgeon looks at all four glands. Oh, you just phys- visualize. You physically find each okay. four. You start with the one, if, as most of the time, you know which one it's going to be, most likely. You, t- you look at that and remove it, and then you look at the other three to make sure that they're not enlarged. Sometimes one of them can be overactive, but not as overactive, and those other tests don't pick it up, so it's important that you look for all four. So you simply remove the gland that's causing the problem? And... Exactly. So if you have one that's causing the problem, you simply remove that one. If you have two, the same thing. Very, very rarely, you'll have three or four. And in that case, um, you remove all but one half of one gland. Interesting. Interesting. So once it's gone, um, does, does this problem come back in the other remaining glands if you take the one out? So if you, if there's really two ways to approach the operation, if you take the approach where you look at all four, um, over 10 years, it's a 98% cure rate. Okay. Interesting. Okay. If you take the approach where you only look at the one that lights up on those two studies I talked about, it's about a 94% cure rate. So somewhat lower because you can have, as I had said before, you can have some glands that are enlarged and are over-functioning, but they're less over-functioning than that main one. And so the studies may miss them. And so depending on the approach you take, the cure rates differ, but both are quite high. Good. Okay. 
Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jesse Gutnick, an assistant professor of surgery. Um, I also want to make sure we talk about thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. Um, how would a person know that they have a thyroid nodule? How would that come to light? So people notice they have thyroid nodules really one of two ways. Um, and I'll talk about the less common one first. The less common one is someone looks at themselves in the mirror or a family member says, you have a goiter, which is a swelling in your neck in the area of your thyroid. Sometimes they're symmetric, where it's just a general enlargement. Um, sometimes it's just one side and it looks like a lump in the neck. That's a little bit less common nowadays because we have iodine supplementation in our salt. Okay. So if you go back to the early 20th century, um, goiter was a very, very common problem because we, don't, we didn't have enough iodine in our diet. And iodine is the mineral that's used to make thyroid hormone. And the thyroid would um, get enlarged if it didn't have enough of this. Nowadays, that's less common, but you still see it um, more frequently than you might think. Um, more commonly, you someone went in for a physical exam, either with their family doctor or for a woman with their gynecologist, and they appropriately had a screening thyroid exam where the, their doctor felt their thyroid. And they said, hey, you've got a little nodule here. Then they the, get referred to work that up. The nodule doesn't necessarily mean cancer, though, does it? Not necessarily. So it depends on how the nodule feels. Um, but you don't really know until it's worked up whether it is a thyroid cancer or if it's a benign nodule. So you have to look at it as, as if it could be. Exactly. And most people that are referred for nodules end up um, being followed for a little while and then it's determined that it's a benign nodule and they're dismissed from follow-up because over time you've been able to figure that out. So really the crux of figuring out whether something is benign or not is obviously how it feels and then most importantly how it looks on ultrasound. There are some nodules that are entirely obviously benign. There are some that are obviously cancerous and then there's a lot that are in between. For some of the in-between ones, um, a biopsy is needed, and that's also done in the office with a very tiny, tiny needle. Um, and that typically gives the answer, is this completely benign and I don't need to worry about it, or is this a thyroid cancer that requires more treatment? And if it is thyroid cancer, um, is surgery the treatment? Surgery is the main treatment for thyroid cancer. Um, the extent of surgery that's needed um, depends on whether there's any thyroid cancer spread or not. For the vast majority of patients today in the modern times, it hasn't spread to any lymph nodes. Um, and so uh, you don't need any lymph nodes removed along with the thyroid. So you take the whole thyroid out? For the very, very, for the typical thyroid cancer, the entire thyroid is removed. For some very, very small ones, and usually these are ones where the thyroid is removed for other reasons, but you see the tiniest of tiny little thyroid cancer in it, Sometimes if you didn't remove the whole thyroid, you don't go back and take the rest. But that's something that's made on an individual basis. And that's basically because our pathologists have become so good nowadays that they're seeing tiny, tiny little cancers that they probably never knew about in the past because they weren't as good at looking for them. But the vast majority, you remove the entire thyroid. And then uh, patients are able to take hormones to supplement whatever the thyroid does provide they take a supplement for that, right? Exactly. One of the great things about thyroid surgery is it's one of the few organs where we can give you back exactly what that organ made in the form of medication. 
Um, also, depending on the size and the and the characteristics of that thyroid cancer under the microscope, some people need some additional treatment. For the people that do need extra treatment, to treat people with um, radioactive iodine, which is actually much more pleasant and easy to deal with than chemotherapy like is traditionally used for other kinds of cancer. And that's what is used for treatment for people that need more than just surgery. Okay. Well, thank you. This has been very interesting. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on air. Coming up next, an outreach program in Haiti that involves experts from upstate in Syracuse on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Representatives from Upstate, plus nine other SUNY campuses, are working together to establish a sustainable village and learning community on 40 acres of land in Haiti that was donated by a Nassau Community College professor emeritus. Here to talk about this project is Upstate pediatrician Dr. Janice Bach. Welcome. Good morning, Amber. Thanks for being here. So tell us, what is a sustainable village and and what is a learning community? The sustainable village learning community is a model that has been proposed with elements from work done with the World Health Organization. And the idea is learning and uh, research through development and service to other people. Um, This project that is now um, being undertaken through SUNY and the Kellogg Foundation is to develop a site in Haiti where not where we'll help promote development and sustainability on many different levels and different sectors. Okay, so um, sort of teaching um, people how to take care of themselves? Exactly. Okay, neat. Well, it seems like a pretty huge undertaking with so many SUNY campuses involved. I know Binghamton is um, doing the public administration part. Buffalo is concentrating on social work. Cobbleskill has agriculture and fisheries. Uh, ESF is doing the landscape architecture part. And then Upstate um, doing the public health part, right? That's right. We're working along with people from uh, Stony Brook and Nassau Community College, as well as um, some not-for-profits. And our portion of it is to, we have a health and wellness working group. And our our task is to develop um, a medical clinic at the village, which would work in conjunction with local hospitals and other clinics, and we would provide care, but we would also help develop their medical uh, resources as well. Because they don't have 
medical resources at this point? It's, it's very limited. It's, okay. it's not what it, it should be, and we would like to build a sustainable, long-term process that helps um, build their resources and works towards capacity building. Okay. And we should mention that um, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Bonnie Grossman, is also involved with you working together on this effort. Absolutely. So, so I know it's the very early stages, right? Um, but what do you expect to be doing um, for this physically? Will there be trips to Haiti? There's already been one trip that uh, Dr. Grossman and I have gone to with this project. The other folks involved with the project have gone um, on other trips prior to this. When we were there a month ago, we visited other hospitals in the area to speak with the providers there and to start to learn what it is that they need from us. This is not about us going in and telling the citizens of Haiti what they need. This is about us going in and listening to them and learning more about what they have available and helping them develop what they would like to have. Interesting. Well, I want to hear more about that um, trip as well. Um, what can you tell us about this village, um, Akaya? How do you say? Akaye. Akaye. Right now, Akaye is there is a city there. It's a very a very historical city. I believe that's actually the area where the Haitian flag came to be. Huh. Um, so it, it has a, a rich history. The site is um, 40 acres that's outside of Akaye. It's um, an arid landscape with scrub brush. Of course, it's very hot and humid. It's along the coast. So there's um, all sorts of resources that are untapped, for instance, within the ocean, and also opportunities for um, different types of transportation. And that's where the SVLC, as, as we all call it, it has multiple different parts to the project. Uh, with the health and wellness, as I mentioned, we want to have a, a clinic where we can um, teach people care for patients and support the local um, health network. But the other portions of the project also will focus on uh, building those resources. Um, they plan on having a fishery and hopefully a cannery um, that can develop uh, more commerce in that area and work towards transportation, developing water ferries, uh, water taxis and ferries to help augment the transportation that's there. Many, many facets to the project. You said SVLC, and that's the Sustainable Village Learning Community. That's right. right? It's okay. much easier to say that. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so uh, Akaye is outside of Port-au-Prince? Yes, it's a little over an hour's drive. Okay, so it's quite a ways from, is that the closest um, area where they would receive medical care at this point? Yes, for, okay. the, for the most, for the most part. part. There, there are hospitals in that area. Uh, but like much of Haiti, they lack um, resources and funding and staff. They and do the best they can, but uh, they definitely are lacking. And probably still recovering from the earthquake. That's right. So. That, that still affects everyone. Okay. Well, let me remind listeners, uh, this is HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Janice Bach. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate, and we're talking about an exciting project in Haiti um, involving SUNY Upstate and nine other SUNY campuses. 
Um, so you, you've made two trips to Haiti already yourself. What can you tell us about what, what that was like? It's been a remarkable experience, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to go there. I believe these are the first of many trips I'll be making. This summer, Dr. Grossman and myself, as well as Dr. Mark Paul Hamas from the Center for Global Health here at Upstate, um, and a couple of other individuals, we traveled to Haiti for a global health conference, and that was the beginning of some of our other partnerships with individuals from Haiti. We worked with, we were alongside um, folks from the Haitian Medical Association abroad, and that was a good opportunity for us to start to learn more about Haiti. Upstate is now developing a relationship with that organization. Um, we also had a chance then to go to the State University Medical School. Um, it was a very good opportunity to start learning about Haiti and, and building relationships that carried over to the second trip um, that Dr. Grossman and I went on, where we also got to meet individuals from the state medical school as well as the state university hospital and start to work on even more relationships. So you visited the hospitals there that are... That's right. Um, tell me about the Partners in Health project. One of my larger side projects with our involvement with Haiti is the development of a resident rotation at Zanmi La Santé. That is the um, sister organization for Boston-based Partners in Health. And they now have a teaching university, a university hospital. They have other smaller hospitals as well, but they do have a teaching facility. And we'll be developing a resident rotation where a resident and attending pair will go down for a month-long rotation. So doctors from upstate. That's right. A doctor okay. and a resident from upstate will go for a month, and we will do this three times a year. And the goal is that we go there to teach pediatrics to Haitian medical students and residents, again, working towards capacity building for Haiti for us to hopefully help build their resources there so they are best able to care for themselves. While at the same time, we will be fortunate enough to have a global health experience sure. and our residents will gain more exposure to challenges and uh, healthcare in other parts of the Neat. world. That sounds like an interesting plan. So uh, how do the health issues compare in Haiti to what we have going on here? As you can imagine, uh, it's a very daunting, uh, daunting uh, challenge there. Um, for instance, the maternal mortality is a huge challenge. I heard this on both of my trips down there. For instance, uh, in Haiti, 48 um, out of a thousand mothers unfortunately die giving birth. In the United States, that number is six. Um, infant mortality also it's hugely um, a problem there. Um, a, a similar kind of statistics for statistic for that life expectancy in Haiti is 64 years compared to 80 about 80 years in the United wow. States. It's also a very different medical system in that because of the high unemployment, very few people actually have health insurance. 
the majority of people, if they need care, for instance, if they go to the emergency room, they will, their family members will get a list of what they need and they have to leave the hospital, go to the vendors and stores nearby if they have money and buy IV solutions, needles, tubing, medication to take back to the hospital so the providers can take care of their loved ones. Wow. It's it's a very hard concept to even yeah, very under, different. to even wrap your head around because it's so different than what we have here. Well, how do you step back from a more advanced atmosphere to to work in something that must seem like going back in time? It's it's a very interesting thing to to try to do. What strikes me is how much I respect what the providers in Haiti are doing, that despite lack of funding and lack of supplies, they keep doing everything they can despite such obstacles. There's a very large brain drain, as, as it's called, and many, many, a huge number of the providers leave Haiti. Um, but there are those that stick it out and they stay and they're doing everything they can uh, despite huge obstacles. Did you see any similarities with Central New York while you were there? Interestingly, the residency program that I visited, the structure of it is very similar to what I'm used to here at Upstate, both as a resident, a prior resident myself here and now as an attending. Um, the way people care, and that certainly is evident in both places. Um, what did what did the people what were they like just on a personal level very like, very welcoming very kind very polite and respectful um, uh, uh, definitely um, showing a lot of dignity for for human life and a tremendous human spirit neat I really enjoyed my time there and definitely look forward to going back again. Well, you will be going back as part yes. of this project, right? Yes. So um, going forward, because we are at the early stages, what do you envision? There'll be some other trips, but um, what do you envision doing? Right now we're working on trying to envision the size of the clinic, what type of resources we need, how it might be staffed, um, what what we may need to reach out to the other facilities nearby. For instance, transportation is a huge problem. So we know to do what we hope to do, we'll need to find a way to help our patients get to the local hospital. So those kind of lo logistical aspects of it. And then, I mean, some of the issues that you mentioned, maternal mortality and infant mortality, I mean, those are health issues, but they're also societal issues so that's there'll be some collaboration with some of the other absolutely that's a very good point and just as here at home now we're working towards population health and looking at all aspects of a person's well-being we're taking that same attitude and same outlook to Haiti as well and certainly want to provide those opportunities and and that is a huge part of the Sustainable Village learning community is looking at all of those aspects and, and how can you integrate health and well-being on, on all those levels. You can't isolate one part of it over another. Well, this is a very interesting project going beyond just bringing supplies and leaving. You're, you're going there and planting something that will grow to... That's right. Stay. 
Well, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Janice Bach, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lucia Gagliese is an associate professor at York University in Toronto. There, she studies pain, aging, and end-of-life care. I can only read you an excerpt from her remarkable short story about being present with and for a friend who's dying. Here is a portion of a bereavement imperative. The first thing, and this is crucial, is to forget what you are trained to do. Stop being a pain researcher, a palliative care scientist, and just be with your dying best friend. You don't have to be professional or stoic or have any answers. You can be scared or sad or angry. You can even hope it all ends quickly, but don't say that out loud. The afternoon, they finally tell him there is nothing left to do. Walk into his hospital room the same way you have every day for the last six months, a little breezy, a little concerned. Do not burst into tears when he looks at you that way and asks, how are you doing with this? If you do, just hug him, cry together. Nobody can make it better this time. Back at your desk, try to work. Admit you can't. Everything is about him. Every paper, every task, every thought. Work will not be your escape this time. Wonder what fool notion made you want to study the end of life. Don't explain this away as death preparation or anticipatory grief or death anxiety. There is nothing for you in all that data, all those meaningless statistics massaged into significance. Now it's time to start saying goodbye. You can't. You won't be able to do it all at once. So start by telling him what he's meant to you. Expect to abandon the effort a few times. It's hard to sum it all up. Try anyway. You may even say something coherent. It's fine if you don't. Forgive yourself. Maybe just stick to history. Tell him stories. Keep it light. Start that first day of kindergarten when he let you get in front of him in the line for the slide. Then grade by grade, conjure the teachers and students. Wonder where they are now. Schoolyard games, gymnasium dances, his first motorcycle. What were you thinking, you both say over and over, laughing until tears stream down your cheeks. Don't feel guilty. Say, I just want this to be easy for you. He says, you've spent your whole life making it easier for me. Thank you. One morning, his wife tells you he's not making sense. He keeps talking to someone named Wayne. Don't tell her that Wayne was one of the little kids in your circle of friends, the one who disappeared after grade six. six. Be reassured that your dying best friend is seeing your long dead friend. Take pleasure in the idea of them hanging out again, skateboarding through the afterlife. Imagine joining them. When he tells you that Wayne visited, nod and say, that's nice, I haven't seen him since we were kids. Do not crumble when he says he misses you. Fine, crumble, but just for a minute. Understand, watching him, that this is it. 
There are only a few hours left. You are finally ready to say goodbye. And so is he. Hug him. He whispers, Wayne's here, next to you. He's waiting. Keep breathing. Say, you and Wayne go ahead. I'll catch up. You sure? Yeah, I got girl stuff to do first. He smiles at that old excuse he's never understood and you've never explained. And then he says, we love you. Say, I love you guys too. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, HealthLink looks at bladder cancer and how to ease the transition into long-term care. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.